Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. I want to talk about U.S. capitalism and the influence uh, wealth and corporations have on, uh, on U.S. politics. So the origin story of U.S. capitalism and wealth controlling U.S. politics has to begin with genocide and slavery. And, and I think it's important to, for people to really understand that there's always been financial interests in everything from, from the very beginning, not just the colonies themselves, but certainly when you, when you get into the Revolutionary War. The, the very people who were responsible for promoting the War of Independence were the wealthy landowners, slave owners, um, uh, plantation owners, uh, slaveholders, <laughs> uh, in, in the United States, those were the guys who were promoting this, uh, this war, this, this war for independence. And, and I think what people don't oftentimes associate, th this wasn't just about freedom from you know, taxation without representation. There were a lot of other things at play. And, and again, most of it was driven by dollars and it was driven by, by corporate interest, by, the, the wealthy elite, there had already begun to be a well-established aristocracy within the colonies of the, you know, of the United States. And of course, black people were already being uh, shipped in as slaves, bred in captivity. Part the, the chattel slavery uh, system had already begun. And native people were already being cast as the enemy. I mean, from the the, the very lines in the Declaration of Independence where Thomas Jefferson wrote and referred to us as merciless Indian savages. We were being cast as the enemy that had to be vanquished along with, with driving, uh, driving off Great Britain, the United Kingdom's uh, control over the colonies. And one of the reasons that is rarely talked about for the, the, uh, uh, the War of Independence was directly connected to the fact that the that the that the crown the king of england was limiting the amount of land that the colonies could expand to land that would be obviously taken from native people he, the the king had issued the the royal proclamation of 1763 which was which had really developed a hard line that the, that the the uk did not want the colonies to to cross over into because of what they viewed as a, a, a real backlash from, from, from native people on the other side of the, that line, the, the line uh, that was demarked um, by uh, the proclamation of 1763. And in fact, a lot of the, the claims that uh, the colonies were making about taxation 
much of that, the, the taxes that were derived, that, that was being imposed by the crown, was to pay for border security, the, the, the security of the frontier. And the reason that the colonists were so against that was because they didn't want to recognize, they didn't want to honor that frontier boundary. They wanted to expand into native territories. And this was less about politics than it was about money, about corporate interest, about the, the wealthy land speculators that wanted to go expand into, into, into quote-unquote Indian country. Understanding that one of the ways that capitalism was always bolstered by the United States was through either expansion, you know, the manifest destiny, or later on, uh, imperialism that would that would push the United States into into Hawaii and into the South Pacific, into uh, into South America, different places. So, this is what it gets missed in a lot of the conversation. You know, it, it's really easy for people to to think about how influential corporations are on American politics now, but. It has always been the way. The reason slavery existed for so long in the United States was because of, of, of plantation owners. It wasn't just the politics of slavery. It was the moneyed interest of slavery. The, the reason there were so, uh, so many conflicts with Native people wasn't because of ideological views. It had to do with land control, control of land that the— that not just the, the state politicians or, or national politicians were interested in, but corporate interests. The gold rush. The gold rush was was driven as much by bankers as it was by, by politicians. It's just that the bankers controlled the politicians, even way back then. So I, I think when we have a conversation about the influence of, of, of wealth in U.S. politics, it's not a recent phenomenon. It's something that we really need to, to look at history and understand that, that, that wealth w drove the, the chattel slavery industry. And, and I've mentioned this on the show before. In the 1860s, the, large, the single largest um, valuation of U.S. assets rested with, with slavery. It, the idea of, of owning human beings trading human beings for labor that was a large the single largest asset that would could be measured in uh, in the u.s economy it wasn't land even <laughs> it wasn't considered uh uh equipment or or beasts of burden other than than the, the chattel slavery it wasn't horses and it wasn't equipment it wasn't any of that stuff it was slavery and of course the other thing that would become the other, the, or the, the other asset that was the largest was land and land that could be expanded. Every push to, to rid Native people of land had to do with corporate interests. Yes, there, was, there, there were politicians that were, that were bought out through that corporate interest. But it's important that people understand that this wasn't just an ideological battle. This was all about money. It always has been. Every part of U.S. politics was driven by financial interests. Now, oftentimes, these, uh, these wealthy people would become the politician. George Washington, first president of the United States, he was a guy who was double-dealing Native people the entire time before he would uh, be enlisted as a general for the, uh, the, the War of Independence. He was a, he was a surveyor, 
and, and surveyors were the guys who, who you know, created the maps, created the boundaries, drew out property lines, and were, were actually the land speculators. That's exactly what he was. And, and he was double-dealing Native people the entire time. He had certain people within the, the colonial forces that were, were trying to patch things up with different Native groups while he was double-dealing their lands. He was promising Native lands that he was telling Native people directly to their face, oh, no, you're, you're going to be secure, secure in your lands. He was double-dealing that land. That's how he planned to pay for all his generals. And, and he was basically enlisting people to fight for the War of Independence, promising them all this native land and Indian land was, was always a commodity all the way up through. In fact, it's still a commodity. We are still dealing with, with the, the fight to not just protect the lands that we occupy, but the lands around us that are uh, put placed in jeopardy because of pipelines or because of even, even some of the massive solar farms that have been uh, planned in areas that, that take into no consideration the economic, the ecological impact, the environmental impact that, that these, the utility scale solar farms will create or wind farms for that matter. Our lands get targeted for things like dumping. They get targeted for highways. They get tired, targeted for all the kinds of things that most people don't want in their own backyard. Most, most white people, most Americans. So our people and our lands get targeted as sacrifice zones for the further development of U.S. infrastructure. And that's what much of this stuff is called. You know, Hillary Clinton referred to, when she was asked about pipelines, her response was, well, I, I fully support federal infrastructure projects. That's what she was calling the very pipelines that, that, that 10,000 people gathered at Standing Rock to oppose. So it's really important that people understand that, again, these, these pipelines, are, are they're, that's the oil industry. So it isn't just that there's federal infrastructure projects. These federal infrastructure projects are driven by financial interests, by corporate interests. You know, when you, then when you think about the influence that, like the tobacco lobby had. Look, <laughs> the big tobacco loved native territories when we were selling, you know, Marlboros without uh, state tax, uh, taxes on them. When we entered into the, even to the mail order trade, when we were pushing out big tobacco, the premium brands of tobacco into into all these other places. They oh, look, they were they were complicit with us, not just. They weren't just vendors. They, they weren't just selling. They were complicit in us developing what, what came to be known as, as, as our tobacco trade. But once we started producing our own products, the tobacco lobby turned on us. And next thing you know, we had the tobacco lobby helping to write regulations that would, that would put us out of business, whether it was the direct mail business or, um, or, 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 or any of the other uh, uh, developments that we had as we kind of backwards integrated into the tobacco industry when it was clear that we would no longer have New York state wholesalers supplying our tobacco. The, the convenience store lobby, that's another, again, corporate interest driving U.S. politics, driving regulations. These guys spent millions of dollars trying to shut down our, our stores on our territory. Again, I, I've got to, <laughs> got to be clear. Even after mail order was, was, pretty much shut down. We still had tobacco lobby and the uh, convenience store lobby trying to push the states to shut us down 
uh, for, for our sales on our territories, on our own territories, exclusive sales that were, uh, that were native brands only and both the convenience store lobby. I remember having, doing a, um, an interview on the Capitol press room in Albany with, uh, with Susan Arbetter. And they had, um, um, the guy's last name was Calvin. I can't remember, but he was the, the head of the, the, the New York association of convenience stores, NIACs, they called it. And, they were they were just as adamantly opposed to to us selling our own native brands on our own territories as they as they were selling premium brands. They just felt like we were we were killing their business. So again, the corporate interest have, ha, has always driven politics both at the state level and the federal level. We've seen this in gaming. We've seen this obviously in the oil industry. And I'd be remiss if I didn't really highlight one of the most egregious. Uh, you know, parts of um, what Native people experienced. In the 1920s, actually at the turn of the, the, the 20th century, in the 1900s, early 1900s, the Osage were the, were the wealthiest people uh, in the United States, but maybe even in the world. And it's because the lands that they had moved to when they were relocated, when they were forced to leave their homelands, and they purchased their lands in Oklahoma, they purchased, they purchased it. And they and they owned the mineral rights as well. So when vast um, uh, reserves of oil were discovered on that land, they had the oil. They had the oil rights. Now they were screwed, you know, by big oil, big time. I mean, they were they were still probably only getting pennies on the dollar for the oil reserves. But but there was such a massive amount of oil in Oklahoma that the Osage lived large, and they they again lived very very um, affluent lives. And of course. <laughs> The white people, the corporate interests of, of, of white America was all over it. Not only did you have, uh, were they being exploited for everything from the cost of a, of a car to a, a funeral, um, all of the, the stores, they glommed there. They, they put up their trading posts, their general stores to take advantage of the fact that Native people had money. There were actually white individuals, men, who would endear themselves to Native women seduce them into, into marriage, have kids with them, and then kill off their wives so they could control the head rights of the oil wells. That's how, how, how twisted the, the interests were in, uh, in exploiting the oil out of, out of Native territory. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. Again, um, if you want to check out uh, uh, David Grand's book, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, it, it de uh, details the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. That's the subtitle. Um, but again, it, it, to, to look at how strong the influence was of guys like, you know, John D. Rockefeller and others who went into quote unquote Indian country to exploit and extract their oil. And we're, and we're still dealing with, with extraction problems on our territories today. There are open pit uranium mines that, that not sure the government might've been the, the, the end, uh, consumer of those, of that uranium, but the, the mining interests, they, they made a mess of land. There's still to this day, there are open pits from open pit uranium mines in, uh, throughout Indian country. I mean, and, and we've got cancer clusters as a result of it. That's again, the corporate interests that were, that worked hand in hand with the, um, with the state and, and federal governments because we were there for them to make money off of the fact that we were, we were shipped on the land, onto land. They thought had no value. Then later found out that it did have value. 
the gold rush. The gold rush that, you know, pushed into the Black Hills and then into, into California farther. It actually spurred a whole nother level of bounties for scalps of Native people. Because we represented the obstacle to them making money off of uh, what was considered the gold rush. In fact, there were some that made more money off of uh, paying, getting paid for Indian bounties than they ever made speculating for gold, panhandling or mining for gold. That's just another example of how not just the, the individual, but the corporate interest that drove the, the gold rush, the corporate interest that, that, that drove the oil industry, even, even the, um, uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, grazing on native lands would, 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 would become a major issue. So you wouldn't have to own lands. You could work out these, these uh, grazing leases from, from native terrorists. And half the time, native people never got, never got the money. I've, I've talked about the um, uh, Cabell uh, suit, which was the United States misappropriating, losing as much as 40 billion. It might have been as much as 100 billion dollars of, of native assets. And part of that had to do with oil leases, grazing leases, water leases, timber leases, even the actual deeds to properties that corporations managed to get their hands on. And they and the federal government couldn't account for it. When Eloise Cabell brought the class action suit against the, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs for mismanaging the assets of Native people, who they were, which is what one of their charges were, which was to make sure that Native people weren't taken advantage of, at least that's what they claimed it was, they, they actually facilitated mo- much of this. They, they brought the suit, and by some estimates, again, it was between 40 and, and $100 billion. The Obama administration settled it with $4 billion. $4 billion for what was easily a $40 billion uh, loss at the hands of the Interior Department. And out of that $4 billion, less than half of it actually went back to Native people. Some of it went back to buying the land that they, that they erroneously had, uh, had sold off in the first place. So it was like they took the, the money twice. You know, somebody got paid twice for the land. <laughs> they, they got the value of the land for all those years without paying for it. Then the federal government used a suit that they had to settle with Native people for to, to pad white people a little bit more. And again, these aren't just individuals. These are corporations that, that drove not just the corruption, but the, but the, the politics, politics and the political solutions, if you want to call them that. This is what, this is what was the experience of, uh, of, of Native people when, when we had all of our lands and even as we got driven into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of our, uh, of, of our lands, we were forever being eyed as, as somebody's opportunity to take advantage of. Even when it came down to things like selling alcohol, I think about red clay on the, you know, on the Nebraska, just over the, the uh, Nebraska state line from, uh, from South Dakota. And the, the, the millions of beer you know, uh, cans of beer that they sold to, uh, to native people based on South Dakota being, uh, what was supposed to be a dry area, not allow, you know, that they forbid, um, the alcohol sales, uh, in, in that area and, and the native people in particular, but you always had these opportunistic people that would, uh, that would see it through. You know, I talk about the letter that, that Thomas Jefferson wrote to, uh, William Henry Harrison, who was the governor of Indiana Territory, where he told, told him, 
look, we're going to have official correspondence, but I need to write this private letter to you so you understand what's really at play here. We need to convince Native people. We need to get them to love us. We need, we need to have them have a deep affection for us so we can screw them out of their lands. He said, look, we, and what we're going to do is we're going to get our trading houses. We're going to convince the trading houses to make very little money off of what you sell to Native people because we're going to get it back, give it back to them in land. We're going we're gonna to convince Native people to buy as much on credit as possible because when we make that credit, that debt high enough, they'll lop off that debt with the land. So, so you, all you folks who are selling all your utensils to Native people, don't make money off of your sales. You're going to get it back in land. That's what they did. And we, and we saw this. Look, we even saw Native children being sold. That's how... That's how the U.S. capital system, uh, capitalism works. It, it worked in ways that seemed, I mean, it seems impossible when you revisit history, what, what the United States, what the individual states, what the churches and, and their capitalistic goals. Yes, the churches were a big part of not just capitalism, but they, they too were the corporations, the churches themselves. They were involved in much of this speculation about what they would could do to Native people and, and to Native lands. It's, it, it, I mean, it, it gets into it that deep. So as I said right in the beginning, the origin story of capitalism, U.S. capitalism, and corporate or, or wealth controlling U.S. politics, it begins with the genocide of Native people. And even when it was no longer fashionable to kill our people and to remove us from the land, there would be an effort to, to, to constantly exploit the lands that we still occupied, even the lands that we still lived on. Again, I talked about the, the open pit uranium mines. We weren't run off that land, but the land would be rendered unlivable. The land would be rendered a health risk to, to, to reside on. So it got to the point where it wasn't even necessary to take our lands anymore. The corporate interest knew how to take the value, to take something that they thought was a value out of the lands. Anything that they could get value out, whether it was on top of the lands, whether it was you know, water, whether it was timber, whether it was grass grazing, or whether it was minerals, whether it was the fossil fuels. Native land was always targeted. It was targeted, at, you know, and again, this is what we call environmental racism, but for us, it goes beyond just racism. It is environmental genocide. It's the idea of making it impossible for Native people to even live. In some parts of our, our, of our lands, look, between dumping that was done with nuclear waste, look, even here as I talk to you from the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation, upriver from us is the West Valley Nuclear Demonstration Project where they were storing nuclear waste. And where does it lead you into? To Cattaraugus Creek. The very river that runs the full length of our lands here. San Carlos Apache. The San Carlos River was, was, was essentially decimated by dumping Agent Orange. There, there are Agent Orange containers that, 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 they have, that, that were illegally dumped. And of course, we say illegally dumped. You know, the thing about corporate interest, when you strip away environmental regulations in general, or you target a place that may that nobody's going to investigate any environmental regulations, 
you realize that the cost of, of, of destroying land in a sacrifice zone, even if you have to pay something. I mean, I think about how many times Native people have brought a suit against, I think about uh, Ford versus Man or Man versus Ford down in Ramapo territory. Oh, yeah, they win a big suit against, against Ford Motor Company for illegally dumping all kinds of toxic waste, especially paints and that kind of stuff on their land. And they win. But then the, the automotive industry, which is, was having a, a bit of a lag at that period of time, threatens that they're going to they're gonna file for bankruptcy and that the Ramapo will get nothing. So they end up settling pennies on the dollar. So it doesn't matter if you win a lawsuit. Winning a lawsuit is not the same thing as getting paid out. So this is what we saw. I mean, and again, I mentioned the Cobell suit. I, I mentioned how many times that we've, we've brought actions, whether it was land claims or land use cases. And we might have a good showing in a court, but that doesn't mean that things turn around. Oftentimes, there's a way of manipulating. Think about gaming. <laughs> the the Cabathon get, gets sued by the state of California for a high-stakes bingo, and they win. The Cabazon wins. And the Supreme Court rules that California can't tell the, the, the Cabazon or Native people that they can't do gaming. If the state's doing gaming, Native people can do gaming. So what does the United States do? They immediately create craft a law called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that is going to who's it going to benefit most it doesn't benefit us as far as we're concerned all the Supreme Court did in Cabazon was was say what we already knew that we had the right to do gaming but they craft they craft a law that's going to benefit vendors it's going to benefit financiers it's going to benefit you know consultants and on all the people that we would contract under a new federal statute to enable us to to further in quote-unquote Indian gaming we weren't the beneficiaries of IGRA. Every non-native organization, vendor, again, consultant, contractor, every, every contractor became a, a beneficiary of that. We had the right to do gaming before IGRA. They got the right to participate in, in quote-unquote Indian gaming after IGRA. And they could do so under the cover of a federal statute. So we have to be wary of how... Even when we press or push for legislation that's supposed to help us, there's always somebody else that's getting helped in a much bigger way. The, the, the beneficiaries of most quote-unquote pro-native uh, legislation is usually somebody that's not native. And I'm not just talking about the lawyers and the, and the, and the bloodsuckers that, uh, that, that hang around Native territory making millions of dollars in consultancies uh, and in, in lobbying or in and rarely in litigation, but certainly um, legal, professional legal services. I'm talking about vendors, the, the people who see us as the cash cow um, that, that we could be to them. There's always a corporate interest involved in in the legislation even when it gets masked as as some sort of you know pro-native legislation so when i talk about the genocide being a big part of u.s capitalism and uh and corporate control of politics even when our existence becomes um is no longer threatened as 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 a physical existence it becomes important to, to almost prop us up enough so, so corporate interests can still make money off of us. I mean, look, the Seneca Nation is not only, I think, the second or third largest employer in, in Western New York. The amount of economic uh, um, 
stimulus that the Seneca Nation's gaming operations do between all of the local vendors and every, I mean everything from from the real estate industry to you know car sales to all that stuff it's all impacted by the Seneca Nation being successful but even as even as that success happens we've got the state still trying to pull another billion dollars out of Seneca Gaming another billion dollars out of Seneca Gaming this is where we see that relationship between the corporate interest and the political interest of not only our state, but of the federal government as well. And we don't oftentimes recognize that part of the reason that it appears that we may have an ally here or an ally there is because they've got their own moneyed interest for, for supporting something that we're doing. And, this, and that's the challenge. Rare is it, rarely is it that, that we can advance something that is singularly to our benefit. And 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 look, we see it as as um, as you know, um, uh, court cases run through. I mean, it, there's an irony in the fact that even when we have a victory in a in a in a court case, whether it goes to the Supreme Court or uh, of the United States or, or or the state courts, there's always something language in the legal dicta that manages to trim away at some of our uh, some of our advantages, literally. There is federal law and there are federal court case rulings that say it is unlawful for us to market our regulatory advantages, our tax advantages. I've seen it. I've seen it in print. They literally say it's illegal for native territories to market their tax advantages as counties do it, as states do it, as towns do it, as countries do it. But we, we still we still see there's a difference when it comes to what native people can and can't do on our lands as far as. The, the state, federal, and of course, corporate interests of the United States are. So again, say it one more time as I close. The origin story of U.S. capitalism and moneyed interests over politics begins with slavery and genocide. I'm John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Back then I used to drive off Mason. Those cops not used to the faces. We got they would run my plates and we stopped, but I just left work while I restocked, but they see my whipping. See pots on my outfit. They think treetop got a head full of steam like a teapot. Better do what he say or you get shot. Ooh, who are you? See you like red, must be a pop rule. If you went to work, why bring the crew? What you think black folks don't carpool? Better would have been a crib if my shirt turned blue. Keep your hands on the wheel, sir. Ten and two. I stopped this car cause you did too dark. You know that's a lie. That ain't true. It's cause I swear, swear, swear.